Welcome to the Council Podcast. I'm your host, Mel Scott, Senior Legal Counsel at a global technology company based in Brisbane, Australia. I'm passionate about all things in-house and I'm so excited to share insights, interview key people in our profession and demystify in-house practice. My guest today is David Ball. Dave and I worked together for over three years at Megaport, him as the head of sales. And you know what? I had to take the opportunity to ask him some of the things that in-house lawyers wish that they could ask people in sales management positions because Dave and I managed to cultivate a really collaborative working relationship. And I know that that's not always the case. Legal and sales, it's a tale as old as time we can be mortal enemies or best friends, and we know which one we prefer. So this interview is a little different, and I'm really grateful to Dave for taking the time to answer my questions honestly, and he just, he brought so much value. So if you've ever wondered what goes through a salesperson's mind, and like, why are they acting this way? How did it come to this? And why is the counterparty insisting on using their paper for our service? I mean, we deep dive into all of this, and more and Dave just brought so much value to the conversation. I think this is going to be really helpful. So enjoy this episode with David Ball. This episode of Council is brought to you by Markster. Markster provides dynamic trademark services to modern in-house legal teams. Not having a central database means that in-house legal teams can't easily store or access critical corporate knowledge or report on the status of their trademark portfolio, upcoming renewals, risks, budget, and other issues. The Markster platform enables strategic decision-making and data-powered reporting. Find out more at markster.com.au or reach out to Kate and the Markster team. Their contact details are in the show notes. I would also like to thank InCouncil for supporting this episode. InCouncil provides people and tech solutions for in-house legal teams. They provide you access to a high-caliber panel of sole practitioners, which does include a lot of former in-house lawyers who can help you with ad hoc matters or ongoing support. They also specialize in helping GCs select, set up and integrate the best tools and technologies. Go to incouncil.com.au to find out more. P.S. If you aren't already subscribed to InCouncil Weekly, you are missing out. I always look forward to it landing in my inbox. It is a weekly email with bite-sized insights for in-house counsel and creative legal minds. You can find the link to sign up in the show notes. Dave, welcome. How are you going? Thanks for coming. I'm well. Thank you, Mel. How are you? Good. Yeah, I'm well. Thank you so much for joining me on my little project because you're actually taking a leap of faith here and you're coming and talking to a whole heap of lawyers. And I mean, I, I, I don't know about you, but like most sales professionals don't love to do that. So I really respect you giving me your time. And so I can pick your brain on some of the topics that I know my listeners will be very curious to hear from you. Of course. I'm excited. Let's do it. Awesome. So Dave, natural, my first question, if you had a limitless credit card, but you could only spend it at one shop, what shop would that be and why? Yeah, I've been thinking about this one, Mel, and I don't have a great answer. I've got two answers. How's that? You can have two. 
I think as a salesperson, I think the salesperson answer is probably spend it at the shop at the very end of a quarter of the company you work at, right? So, you know, and I say that because, you know, the difference between hitting 100% and not hitting 100% is light and day, right? So, you know, if you hit 99.9% or you hit 100% or 101%, it's the difference between, you know, meeting an exceeding target or or obviously not meeting and being under target. So, you know, there's been multiple times in my sales career that I would have loved to have had some ability to to buy a port if we're talking about Megaport or buy a particular product or service to get over target. Just to tip the balance. Yeah, that's right. The probably more personal answer is I'm not one for material things. I can't think of when I last went shopping, but anything that saves me time. So if it's even if it's a tech product or it's a service, anything that gives me more time to do what I want to be doing rather than the stuff I don't want to be doing, that's what I'd be spending my money on. I love it. Maybe you could outsource to like all of the tasks you don't want to do. I was going to say mowing, but I actually think you actually like you and like mowing. There's something mindful about that. Although I have just have just finished a weekend where I think I spent probably eight hours in the garden. So I'm not liking the gardening as much right now, but it is a definitely a mindful activity. If we're talking about cleaning or cooking, definitely somebody else can do Outsource that. Outsource it. <laughs> Love it. Thanks, Dave. So as I mentioned, I mean, you are the first professional joining us on the podcast that has not practiced as a lawyer. Good for you. Practice as a bush lawyer though, right? my absolute favorite bush lawyer but you just haven't quite got that piece of paper although you've got a lot of experience can you tell us about your first job and then how you found your way to sales management it's a bit of a funny old journey let me say that right so I did biotechnology at uni so you know we're going back a few years now but yeah I mean it's kind of one of those things I was kind of good at science at school and my mum desperately wanted me to be a doctor and uh, or a lawyer, funnily enough, but, you know, neither of those I was very interested in. And so I kind of met a halfway and sort of did a degree that was sort of half science and half business. And then graduated as probably around the same time you did sort of around the GFC, which, you know, was not a great, a great time to graduate uni and definitely not a great time to graduate uni in an industry that doesn't have any jobs at the best of times. So I found my way, fortunately, into market research initially, did that for three weeks. And then my boss said, do you want to be an innovation manager? And I said, what's an innovation manager? But thought it was interesting and thought it sounded better than doing market research. So started being an innovation manager. And that kind of set me on the path to kind of working in the commercial side of business. So I did that for a couple of years, spent a couple of years working uh, in the UK for Deloitte, again, kind of in the innovation consulting type space, and then got sick of the UK weather, came back to Australia, worked for a bank, uh, or was it Credit Union, is a bank now, you know, managing their kind of new product development and innovation and helping them basically try and do things a bit more creatively and different than most other banks. And then, so how I got into sales from then is we were working with a vendor called Yodley. Uh, it's now Investnet Yodley. Um, and we were using their product and I got along with the, the sales guy quite well. He was the VP of the region. And he said to me, look, we're looking to hire someone in country. Do you want a job? And I kind of said, yeah, that sounds interesting. You know, working with fintechs and banks and, you know, all kinds of different companies to, you know, use financial data and try and do some interesting things. I'm not really realizing it was a sales job. And then on my first day, I remember it was kind of the baptism of fire into sales. He, um, he called me up and he said, Dave, we've got a hire and fire policy. Either you're going to make it and, you know, I'll give you the budget to hire out a team or, you know, you're not going to make it and you're going to be out the door and you can go back to banking. And I thought, oh, okay, welcome to say- welcome to sales, Dave. And before that point, I'd, I'd really never sold anything, right? I probably, I probably made the mistake of a lot of people throughout university, probably looking at salespeople 
probably in a negative light, you know, and holding all of the stereotypes that people still do, but definitely back then before kind of tech and definitely SaaS type products sort of became more popular, it was definitely much more of the stereotype. And so I never saw myself getting into sales. I never really wanted to be in sales. And so it was kind of by necessity that I kind of fell into it. But I realized that I like talking to people. I really like solving people's problems. And, you know, I've been working in commercial for some time. And so it kind of naturally fit. And I learned along the way. So so obviously I didn't get fired. I, I did manage to succeed and, and built out uh, built out a small team. And, and then, as you know, I did that for a few years and then took a little bit of time off when my wife and I had our twins and and then ended up at, at Megaport, which again, joined as an individual contributor for the first, I think it was about three months or so, and, and then sort of took on the head of sales role Megaport for what was about three, three and a half years. So it was a bit of a backwards way into it, kind of fell into it, but you know, probably like most people, once I got in there, I realized that it was something I really enjoyed. And you know, ultimately when you enjoy something, it kind of aligns with things you're good at, you end up doing a pretty good job. So it's my journey into sales and sales management. That's fantastic. That's so much more interesting than what we do in legal land because we all feel like we have to go and work for big firms. And then maybe you hear about this thing called in-house or or not-for-profit or government or maybe legal tech, but there's like this big funnel that everyone tries to go through at the start of their careers and then eventually they find their way. But I, I love that you've really had a unique journey that I wouldn't have ever guessed. Uh, I suppose looking back, it lines up and you can connect those dots, but as you're in it, you're like, what am I doing? Yeah, that's it. I mean, I get asked by younger cousins and stuff like that. How did you kind of end up where you are? And there's no real good answer, right? You kind of just, you know, you kind of have a true north of what you're you're trying to aim towards. But you know, you've got to, particularly in your younger stages of your career, you've got to spend a lot of time doing the stuff you don't like. And that for me, you know, you talk about working for a big kind of legal firm, for instance, that for me was spending a couple of years at Deloitte. I learned a lot, but you know, I, was, I don't want to go back. And I, you know, I, I realized, which is probably just as important as realizing what you do want to do is realizing definitely what you don't want to be doing. And that was definitely that. So I think the parallels are there between legal and commercial. Can you tell us what a day, like a typical day in the life of a salesperson looks like? I'm so curious. <laughs> it's a lot of lunches and drinking and... Oh, stop it. Yeah, whinging about legal and, and everything else internally. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, it's a difficult question to answer because, you know, there's all different types of sales roles and it, it varies on a few things. It varies on, obviously, what kind of sales role you have. So if you're an inside salesperson, you know, you, you're generally spending your day on the phones or, you know, probably more accurately these days on LinkedIn and other tools to be able to cold contact people, you know, right through to kind of senior kind of sales executives that, you know, spend their day, you know, meeting to meeting and, you know, probably pre-COVID coffee shop to coffee shop and, you know, boardroom to boardroom. But, and also obviously differs depending on whether you work for highly transactional product. So, you know, if your business is about selling high volumes of a small price type product, which, you know, means you, you spend more time with fewer customers, whereas if you work for kind of a, know a company that is more of a solution sale and you sell one contract in a quarter or even some companies where you sell one contract a year you're spending a lot more time with a smaller a lot of a smaller amount of people and and therefore building more relationships and working more closely with them so the typical day obviously changes on a number of factors but probably the best way to summarize it would be it's a lot of time doing things that you have no idea whether they're going to actually have an impact. And, you know, part of the challenge in sales is it can sometimes look like probably from the outside that salespeople aren't really doing a lot, but they are and they're trying everything they can to bring in more customers, to have more conversations and to try and close as much as they can. But a lot of that isn't 
directly measurable and you know for instance some roles i don't want to guess what on the other side you know legal and lawyers do all day but to kind of you know if you look at your your kind of day's to-do list and you know your to-do list might be something like you know you need to solve this legal issue you need to you know get this contract out the door or you need to talk with this executive about this issue sales is much more kind of soft skills it's you might be able to get a contract out the door but more often than not it's following up people and trying to get them to talk to you and try and figure out what their problem is and you might finish your day not really feeling like you've achieved very much but then you'll get a huge win maybe next week and so part of the challenge i think in in sales is both a sales manager and a a direct sales person is you spend a lot of your day feeling like you're not necessarily achieving a lot and your achievement comes in kind of sporadic bursts that sometimes can be pretty unpredictable. Yeah, that's a very different mindset. I can look at my day and and tangibly, well, not so tangibly, I'm not really kind of working with actual paper, but I can look at Ironclad and contract lifecycle management. I can see exactly the numbers of how many contracts and and how many issues and and the to-do list can be ticked off. And it's very much like, yep, I've done all of these things and they had a direct result because it pushed something forward. But for you, it's going to be all of those tiny, tiny little bits and pieces of of outreach and updating Salesforce and, and chasing all different departments internally and then reaching out to your, your customers or your leads and maybe feeling like, yeah, I just... I don't know, did a whole heap of stuff, but just doesn't feel like you did anything until I guess maybe once a week, once a month, maybe once a quarter, depending on those contract life cycles. And then you get that win. You're like, yes, we did it. And here's some commission. (laughs) It was worth it. So you've got to have perseverance. Yeah, one of the biggest traits I think for any, whether sales manager or, or direct salesperson is perseverance and a bit of resilience as well. And, you know, you can be tempted to, and there's definitely value in, you know, the best salespeople are, are quite regimented and make sure they do their follow-up and their admin and you know, every quality salesperson I've ever worked with, you know, there's no excuses why Salesforce or their CRM isn't up to date. It's always up to date. But at the same time, you can fall into a trap in sales of, you know, maybe it's a reflex of wanting to give yourself give yourself some kind of reward throughout the day. You kind of set yourself administrative tasks and, you know, I'm going to add all of this to Salesforce and that's going to make me feel good because I've completed a job. But in reality, the probably the best thing to do would, would be probably spend more time on LinkedIn or more time trying to get referrals and having new conversations, which is a lot softer and immeasurable and ambiguous. But so you can kind of fall into a trap doing that. But obviously, being on top of your administrative tasks and your to-do list is important as well. <laughs> <laughs> well, thank you for giving us a bit of insight. It's, it's a very different world. This is exactly why I wanted to have this conversation with you. I'm going to shift because, I mean, you can correct me if I'm wrong. But when we were working together at Megaport and sales, head of sales and head of legal on the ground in Brisbane, we had a really collaborative working relationship between our departments. And and that is not always the case. It doesn't happen by accident. And it certainly can be um, the experience of many of the, the lawyers in my community that sales and legal just butt heads and it's like mortal enemies. But we actually need each other the most. It's like it, it can be a very toxic kind of relationship because it's symbiotic and we need each other i mean sales is going to bring in the cash that actually gives us a job in legal and most companies have contract policies where you can't just sign any old thing without legal review to some extent so that's where we come in to help make uh, risk adjusted (laughs) decisions that you don't have to make I want to ask you, I think looking back at the working relationship we had at Megaport and then comparing to that to other examples or other things that you might have seen or or heard, what do the legal teams that you love working with, i.e. us, (laughs) I'm leading, I'm leading the witness, but what do, what do they do well? 
Look, I think probably the thing I was impressed with when I first stepped into Megaport and started, you know, working with yourself and obviously the legal team was how commercially focused you guys are from the outset. You know, I've worked in other companies and I've worked in banks, right, which are highly regulated and to try and get things done can sometimes be very difficult. And I've worked in, you know, other technology companies where, you know, the legal team aren't as commercially focused. But, you know, what I was impressed with from the outset, obviously, at Megaport was the legal team was commercially focused. I think that stemmed from a few things. One was, I think, the the sync between the commercial leadership and the, the legal leadership. I think there was a, a good relationship at an executive level, and I think they had respect for each other, and there was that agreement which flowed down into each division. And it's not everything, but if you've got the coordination between divisions and you've got a respect at that level, it, it naturally does find its way down. And so that obviously worked really well. The other thing I think worked really well is really early on, you know, you guys put together the the guide for the commercial team to take lead on the legal contracts. And that really helped as a sales manager. You know, you've always got sales guys reaching out to you saying, we just need legal for this call. We just need legal for this call. And it's kind of akin to sales guys leaning on technical resources. Quite often a customer will say, you know, I really need to talk to a solutions architect. I really need to talk to a technical guy. Can you get a technical guy on the next call? Quite often they say, we really need to talk to your lawyer. We need really need a legal call. But if you've got kind of the the right information in place and you do the right kind of training which you know you guys did such a good job of you can kind of empower the sales team to have those initial conversations themselves and what you start to realize like on the tech side is you know this is true for every company i've ever worked at even though the customers will say they want to talk to the lawyer or they want to talk to a technical person the questions are always the same and as you see in the markups and things in agreements from our time working together it's you know, the red lines are always the same. It's always around, you know, use of logo. It's always around indemnity. It's always around the same stuff. It's the same stuff in every company I've ever worked with. And if you can enable the the sales team to, you know, obviously feel empowered to handle those questions and do the right training and provide the right support. And, you know, that comes with the upfront kind of support and training, you know, the regular ongoing training, but also, you know, being available through things like Slack and what other instant messaging tools we have to be available kind of on the fly. You can kind of handle a lot of that up front. And I'd say that'd be 80% of the probably legal questions that the sales team would have. And therefore they don't lean on the sales team as much. And that frees you guys up to be a bit more productive and kind of scale as well. So that always impressed me, you know, working with yourself and, and the Megaport legal team. But, you know, where I've seen it go wrong is all the obvious ways. It's it's the legal team, you know, or, or the lawyers, you know, have no flexibility around a contract it's you know there, there's no commercial lens to it it's the contract is written away because it has to be executed in a certain way and there's no flexibility around anything and it's where there's not that flexibility and commercial understanding that there's obviously the, the conflict between sales and legal but if you get that communication and the understanding right and each group understands each other's side and what what they're trying to achieve it, it generally works all right Yeah, for sure. It's so great to hear the impact that that initiative had for you and the team because it was was something that I spearheaded early in my time at Megaport because I could see that there was such repeat questions and it was like, well, why don't we give the the sales team an opportunity to upskill and feel confidence in their ability to talk to what aren't always legal issues, but they might think that they are because it's in kind of a legal contract. And I thought, well, this is a great kind of learning and development opportunity for salespeople to feel like they can own the contract a 
little more and it's not all just kind of scary legal stuff. But of course, like some of it is scary legal stuff and that's what we're here for. So I really wanted to make it clear that here are the commercial issues. You can talk on these things and here's like the playbook on how to handle it. And it usually can be resolved in one or two steps and and we're all good. And here are the legal issues and, and this is the stuff that I'm absolutely happy to jump in and talk to. But we try to knock that out and, and compromise and sort it earlier in the piece so that we're not holding up the deal, but also... I, to be honest, so we can avoid wasting time on calls because it's such a collective. Like if I think of all the time and of the money of the salaries in the room, it's such a waste of time in my humble opinion up until the very pointy end and the non-negotiables. And if you're doing like for the kind of contracting that we do, the kind of product that we're selling, honestly, if, if we can't sort it out in a couple of cycles, like something's falling down here, it, it, we've, it cost of acquisition is getting way too high. So... Yeah, look, every 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 tech company I've worked for in in sales has been, you know, you try and not let the customer get to a redlined agreement, right? If a customer sees an agreement in a Word doc, they're going to start to make some edits. So in every company I've worked for, you try and keep the lawyers out as much as possible. Click online, click online. Click online, that's right. So yeah, as long as, you know, as much as the commercial team can answer questions, you know, without making changes, you know, they're incentivized to do that. And obviously it just streamlines everything and, you know, everyone's happy. So that's awesome. And such a good reflection, I think, for for me on on what works well and just speaking to other in-house lawyers that might be struggling to engage with the team, some of the practical and proactive things that they can do that, you know, hearing straight from the horse's mouth that actually make an impact. So with that in mind, if, you, if you're if you thinking about in-house lawyer out there that's listening, that's really struggling with developing the working relationship with their sales team, could you give any, any practical advice, like just really simple stuff that might make a difference for them? I think the first thing is, you know, spend some time in the shoes of, of you know, the commercial team or sales team, right? The, the basis of any good relationship at work or personal is having an understanding and empathy for what the other side is doing and going through and start with that. So try and understand what the sales team are doing all day, you know, what roadblocks they're coming up against, even if they're not relevant to the contract or, or anything legal, right? The legal team can have an understanding of once an agreement lands in their inbox, of what the salesperson has gone through to get to that point where there's a, a legal agreement in their inbox, that will give them a lot more empathy to handle that in a way that gets the best outcome. Where a lot of frustration can come from from a commercial side is, you know, sometimes it's so hard to get a contract from a customer and I've worked in businesses before and, uh, you know, you'll meet a customer and two years later, you'll finally get a contract. And sometimes the deal won't even be worth that much, but sometimes it'll be a huge deal. And you know that if you get that over the line, then your targets are going to be met. The team's targets are going to be met. You know, it's going to be released to the market. The market's going to be happy. You've been working on this thing for multiple years. And, you know, the last thing you want to do is end up in a legal inbox and to have to fight another fight to try and get the a legal team working with you to execute a contract. So I think the first thing on a legal side as well as a commercial side as well right is to understand what the other team are going through and and obviously I mean that from a commercial lens as well I think the commercial team should understand and should spend some time with the legal team to understand what it is that they spend their days doing you know when they get a contract in their inbox what are they looking for what what else is on their plate what are they trying to achieve and I think if you have that base level understanding you know things work together pretty well you and I were quite lucky we we had a great relationship from the start and I think you know when there was conflict in our teams. We always had our kind of respect for each other and relationship with each other to kind of rely on to resolve those issues. And so it kind of, you know, always found when we've worked together that, 
you know, no no conflict from a commercial or a legal side has ever gone beyond the kind of reps or the, the team working together because we've stopped it in its tracks. And so going back to what I said before about executive leadership kind of alignment, it's also true for kind of the manager level as well. If you've got good alignment there and you've got an agreed approach and a way of working together, then, you know, that generally fixes any issues as you go. And also having some kind of regular check-in and ongoing kind of, you know, commitment to each other on what's expected, whether that's behavior of the team with each other, whether it's, you know, SLAs and, you know, expectations, both on a commercial side and a legal side. So turnaround times on a legal side, but, you know, we've found this before, but, you know, what the expectations are on the commercial team to have gotten a contract to or what conversations they are expected to have had with the customer before it lands on the legal desk, right? So I think if you've got the understanding of each other, you've got, you know, a decent relationship and respect at, at a manager and executive level and then expectations around how their teams and uh, are expected to work together. It always works okay. And look, I don't think there's anything that unique between commercial and, and legal on this point. I think that's probably true of commercial and, you know, operations and customer success. It's true for commercial and other teams in the business, you know, product and, and other areas. So I would suggest if in doubt, spend more time with someone on the other team and try and understand where they're coming from and if you understand that and you can show empathy and you can work to solve their problems generally they'll do the same for you as well well said dave that's yeah that's exactly what it comes down to isn't it it's that rapport and and realizing like you are working with people well, we're all people and we're all trying to do our best most of the time and it can be difficult when we've all been working from home but uh it's a world opens up taking the opportunity to meet in person putting your hand up to travel if you need to like that it would just make all the difference it's just yeah phenomenal and actually to be honest something that the commercial team has always done really well is inviting the sales team to sales kickoffs or these like annual conferences when they get together and actually opening up uh, and saying hey would you like to be involved would you like to give us some training you know we want to hear from you as well so it goes both ways and, and we always benefited from from your team being so open so I think that's really great advice thank you and I don't take it for granted that we have lots of interesting personalities in our teams and we have to show leadership um, and manage them and the best way we can do that is build relationships with the the managers and the leaders in I suppose those respective departments so all right so I'm going to ask you to like spill the tea a little bit Dave this is a bit of a crunchy question and I don't you don't need to give all your sales secrets away but like I've got to ask this on behalf of every in-house lawyer ever why do some counterparties insist on using a contract that just does not work like the battle of the paper I call it so you want to buy a product you want to buy a tech product but you want us to use your old school procurement paper that applies to purchasing anything why (laughs) help us understand (laughs) you know I think part of the issue is and you know I kind of touched on it before but you know, the, the lens that salespeople have over agreements. So I'm happy for you to tell me I'm wrong here, but on the legal side, I'd imagine when any contract lands on your desk, it's another customer contract, right? You, it's another contract that you've got to get through the door and get agreed. And, you know, if you've done that, then, you know, great, right? You know, from a sales or a commercial lens, it's, you know, you might have a contract that, you know, a customer might have completely out of the blue may have, you know, sent you an agreement and said, can we just have this small change? And they're going to buy a very small product at a very small amount and you really haven't done a lot of work. That probably looks quite the same as what a really complex customer that's taken two or three years to actually get to the point where they've got an agreement through the door. And part of the, the challenge for commercial is, you know, you finally get a contract 
through or you finally get the you know the customer saying all right we're ready to go we're ready to buy right and again you know that because you know every salesperson has a quota every sales manager has a quota and you know salespeople are measured in one way there's no there's no ambiguity around it either you hit your target or you don't right and there's no excuses there never is an excuse you can't have an excuse in sales you might know you've worked for two years over this agreement and you know you know that this is going to make a difference to yourself the you know the team the business and to you as a commercial person it, it may look like why don't we just put it on their paper right like why can't we just this is you know this this might be hundreds of thousands of dollars a year. It could be millions of dollars a year. You know, what's the big deal between using their paper? We'll just delete everything on their agreement, just put all our stuff in there, right? So from a commercial side, it can sometimes be frustrating because you know that ultimately that's not the way it should be done. And you kind of feel a little bit like you've either failed a little bit or, or let down, you know, the the team in not being able to get to a point where either they, as we said before, just click yes on the terms and conditions or you know they're a lot more flexible but at the same time it is difficult and some customers are just a lot bigger than what we are as a vendor and they're just not flexible and they're used to dealing with customers that uh, or businesses that will flex to to make that business work what i would say is that it generally works pushing back if your product isn't compelling enough or your value proposition isn't strong enough to be able to push back your business probably isn't good enough and your product probably isn't good enough and I would probably wonder why they're buying from you in the first place. So I think there should always be pushback from commercial to start with and I think there should always be pushback from legal to start with as well if there's any suggestion of not using... Oh my gosh, if you're in those meetings and they say, yeah, no worries, we'd like to go ahead, but you're going to have to use our paper because we can't get it through otherwise. Like, do you just die inside or... <laughs> I would... <laughs> Uh, absolutely. And the thing that I kind of learned early on in my sales career was you don't always say yes to a customer. <laughs> the customer the customer is always right, but you don't always say that they're right and you don't always say yes. Sometimes you've got to say no. It's often in saying no that, you know, you get the best customers and you get the best deal and, you know, ultimately you'll the customer will get a better outcome by you saying no. And so you've got to learn as a commercial person, whether that's a sales executive or a sales manager when to say no you know the best negotiation standpoint to come from is when you can walk away from a deal sometimes that's not possible but oftentimes salespeople delude themselves into thinking that they can't wait they can't walk away from a deal when actually they can there's going to be another deal that's going to come along and ultimately the chance of a deal not coming through because of a paper issue or an agreement issue is generally pretty small and so on this point i've been talking a lot but i generally side with legally and pushing back and and pushing back on the customer and and holding firm i think you know it's got a lot of long-term implications if you've got customers on different agreements you know updating products and stuff we've all been there before but ultimately nothing scales if you're constantly doing different agreements and you know you can often work with a salesperson to help them manage a customer conversation better in the future so it doesn't get to that point in the first place is is generally you know where you can stop that in its tracks before it even gets to legal as a kind of an outrageous kind of request but you know they do happen Mel, as we've seen we have no that's that's awesome dave like this is why i love you you're the best i every everyone listening is gonna be like i want dave to be our sales manager because <laughs> i think you are really unique in this in this and i think it's i think it's ultimately i'm, I'm self-serving and saying this but i think it's you think it's the right way to look at it if you're thinking about what's best for the customer and the most efficient process is 
always using the paper that's fit for purpose for the product that you're working with. <laughs> it's very affirming. But, you know, of course, there are going to be exceptions. And if like those dollars are real, you know, you know we, we'll come to the party. There's There, I, there was a, a champagne involved at one point that I got out of the blue for doing something like this for a, a mutual friend of ours. And I remember thinking, well, you know what, maybe I, maybe I can be bought. I don't know. Champagne is always the way to Mel's heart. <laughs> Yeah, it was a whole, oh man, it was a whole box. There was like 12 of them and it was high, high quality. In some instances, it will make sense if it's an incredibly large deal of very, very, what are those, some of those customers that are just like, yeah, they don't care who we are and what we want. You know, this is just going to have to be the way that we do it, but it is going to be slow and it's going to take time. Yeah, look, they should be exceedingly rare that that happens. If that's happening, you know, time and time again, either your product, is wrong for the the customer it's trying to sell into your contract's got issues with it that should probably be resolved with the commercial team or which is probably the most likely your sales team are either being lazy and they're not helping the customer understand what not signing the agreement will do and what all the implications are and they're not having that tougher conversation initially they're trying to slide something through legal to get a deal done and you know don't get me wrong every salesperson wants to do the least amount of work for the most amount of business so you know as a sales manager and as a legal team you've got to sometimes push back on your own team to actually do the work to actually get a deal done and sometimes that is saying no and pushing back on some outrageous requests that we've all seen in our careers and you and I have definitely worked on together. Thank you for for being so so open and honest with that. I have one last question for you and it's really broad. You can just answer however you want, but I'm just, I'm curious about what you're excited about at the moment. What am I excited about? Um, You know, we spent a lot of time working together, Mel, and that unfortunately came to an end not too long ago. And, you know, the hardest thing about leaving was the community and, you know, everything we'd built and, you know, we'd with kind of some of the old timers in the business that have been there for a few years and seen a lot of change. And, um, you know, that was a hard thing to do. But, you know, what I'm excited about this year is actually having a bit of a change from that and, you know, building a, a new community and having a fresh challenge in kind of a new industry. I love commercial. I love sales management. You know, I love I love working on deals and I'll forever want to do that. But I'm excited for a new challenge this year and I'll take a little bit more time to do some of my own things as well, which, you know, when you're Imagining 14 people across five different time zones and forever trying to achieve outrageous targets. You know, you you just don't have time to kind of do any of the stuff that gives you kind of a personal satisfaction. So that's what I'm looking forward to this year. A new challenge, a new team, a new community to build and hopefully, hopefully having some more success that we had when we worked together in a kind of new environment. Well, I'm excited for you, David. I mean, it's it's sad that we're no longer working together, but I'm excited to see what you're doing and what you're creating and yet again, pivoting into another space, but taking all of your skills with you. And don't forget about us and always tell your legal teams to listen to the podcast and to be like us. That's that's what I want to do. I want to like spoil the sales teams to always have like the best experience. So when they go elsewhere, they're like, oh, I wish they did it the way Megaport lawyers did it. But I mean, that's that's my vision. It's it's lofty, but you've got to aim for the moon, right? We had it pretty good. We had it pretty good. We did. Oh, man. Well, all the best uh, with everything. I know some of the cool things you've got in the works and you're, you're an entrepreneurial guy. And now you get to flex some of that muscle. So seriously, all the best. Thank you for being so open and spending time with me and talking about a different topic we haven't we haven't interviewed and done this kind of thing on the podcast and I've just loved it so thank you 
Thank you for having me and I hope I have done you proud and I hope you get some more professionals on board and, and I hope to, you know, hope we can, you know, encourage commercial and legal to work closely together and when that happens, everyone wins and everyone succeeds and everyone's happier, so. And we have jobs. You get your commission, we have a job, so it's win-win. <laughs> <laughs> it works, it works. <laughs> thanks, Dave. All right, thanks, Mel. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of Council. Please subscribe to the show so that you don't miss future episodes. And while you're there, it would mean the world to me if you could leave a review for this show. Tell me what you'd love to hear more of and where you're listening from. To learn more about in-house practice, follow me on LinkedIn and Instagram 